Well, in 2006, the movie The Pursuit of Happiness came out. And if you're familiar with the movie, it is about a family, a guy named Christopher Gardner. And Christopher is, has a wife named Linda, and together they have a five-year-old son. And at the beginning of the movie, Christopher makes a bad investment in some medical tech. Uh, right before like an x-ray machine comes out, he buys the thing before it. And now that the, the better machine's out, no one wants his old machine. And so he spent all, the, all of his savings in this medical tech, and it is useless now. And so Linda, his wife, to save herself from poverty, leaves the family. And uh, they're just struggling to make ends meet. And so Christopher and his son are now evicted from their house. They're living on the streets. And they're just in poverty in a rough spot. But somehow Christopher's out on the street just trying to make ends meet. They're uh, staying at hotels and, and bathrooms of stations. And he runs into an executive of a stock brokerage firm. And he, Christopher's this wicked smart guy. He solves a Rubik's Cube in a taxi cab with him. And it impresses him so much, he's like, you should apply for our internship uh, with our stock brokerage firm. The problem is the internship was unpaid. And so he has no money. He has to support his kid. And he's going to have to find a way to survive through this internship. Well, Christopher gets to go and see the life of the wealthy, the high living, they're going to sports games, living in huge houses, driving awesome cars. And he spends his day doing this, and then he goes home with his son at night, and they are homeless, and they experience life of nobodies. Now, Christopher doesn't want this, so he works as hard as he can to get this job. And at the end of the movie, his hard work pays off, and he gets the job. He becomes the one intern that gets paid. And so now Christopher has all this money. He's working at a top stock brokerage firm, and he, he, he's made it, right? And the end of the movie, Christopher and his son are holding hands, walking down the street of this really nice neighborhood they can now afford, eating ice cream, and they're happy, right? The movie's called Two Patents. They made it. Their pursuit's over. They're, they're happy. But this, this asks the audience, is this really what it means to be happy? Is happiness really found in easy living and nice things? Well, in our text today, God answers that very question. So if you would turn to me to Psalm 1, if you're using the Blue Provider Bible, that's going to be on page 448. And if you do not have a Bible of your own, consider that Bible yours, take that home. We're going to be in Psalm 1 today, page 448. I'm going to read that for us, and that is starting in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, as we look at this text this morning, would you allow me to speak clearly? Would you open our hearts to the beauty of your word? 
do with this now. Amen. If you want a ser- sermon summary statement for today, it's this. Permanent happiness can only come from delighting in God. Permanent happiness can only come from delighting in God. You can see in the sermon notes in your bulletin, this text is broken down into two sections. Section one is the way of happiness. That's the way of happiness in verses one through three. And section two is the way of death in verses four through six. The way of death. So starting with section one, the way of happiness. First, I want us to think about this word, blessed. Blessed. The Hebrew word for blessed comes from the root word asher, which means happiness. This word is either translated as blessed or happy. Either one. The CSB Bible translates this verse as happy as the man, nations happy. I think that blessed and happy are both good translations. However, when I think of blessed, I don't think of happy. Here are a few examples I think of when I think of blessed. Buzz and Beth, when they moved into their house, there was a writing on the wall of their stairs, and it said, prayers go up, blessings come down. That's, that, that's what I think of happiness. When, when athletes are viewed after a game, a lot of times they say something like, I'm just blessed by God to be playing this game. You hear that all the time from athletes. Ephesians chapter 1 uses three different words for blessed. We translate three different Greek words for blessed in just one verse. The words mean worthy of praise, chosen, and generous gifts. So you can see that blessed in the English language is an extremely versatile word. And so because of that, for the sake of clarity, I'm going to use happy instead of blessed, but this word really means happy. So for the sake of clarity, I'm going to use happy. Now on this text, Charles Spurgeon has said, everyone is seeking happiness. That is true, and everyone should read this psalm, for it directs us where happiness is to be found in its highest degree and purest form. So verse 1 describes three things that a happy man does not do. On this verse, the commentary, it's often Jesus in Psalms says, Wisdom is as much about knowing when to say no as it is when to say yes. It is knowing when to walk away, when to swim against the tide, and when not to follow the crowd, even when they laugh at you and call you a fool. This psalm teaches about three areas where we must learn to say no. All right, so area number one. First, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So walks. Walking here refers to the direction your life is going. Just think about where you walk is where you're literally going. And so when there are decisions to be made that affect the direction of our life, we should not seek the counsel of wicked people. Now you might be thinking, Justin, of course I'm not going to ask a murderer on if I should take this job offer or not. Or Justin, obviously I'm not going to go to a kidnapper for advice on where to buy a house. The problem is, is this begs the question, who is wicked? Job 18.21 says, Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. Such is the place of him who knows not God. So the wicked are not just those doing things worthy of imprisonment, but the wicked are all those who do not know God. So what does it mean to know God? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21-23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, 
If we not prophesy in the name and pass out demons in the name and do mighty works in the name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So knowing God is not about our works. It's not about giving money to the church. It's not about being at this building for 90 minutes a week. It's not about all the things we do for God. Knowing God is about having a real relationship with Him. Now, the overarching theme when we went through Colossians here not too long ago was the fullness and sufficiency of Christ. <coughs> so if you want to know God, just look at Christ. Christ took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died a brutal death, and rose from the dead so that anyone who trusts in Him can have a relationship with God. Highly relational. And in this relationship, we daily hear from God by going to His Word. He wrote that for us. In this relationship, we constantly talk to Him by praying in all circumstances. In this relationship, we are united to others who share the same faith by joining a local church, like the members here at Citizens. Knowing God is about having a real relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? When we come to a decision that affects the direction our life is heading, we need to trust in those who trust in Christ and not to trust in the wicked. I don't think this is saying that when we go to Home Depot, we have to ask the man who's giving us advice on a specific tool if he's a born again believer. I don't think that's what that means. I think it means when decisions are being made that affect the direction of our life, who walks not in the council of living, who walks. So these are things like whether or not to accept a job offer, whether you buy a house closer to your church or closer to your work, how to have a hard conversation with a family member. The things that actually matter, we need to walk not in the counsel of the wicked, but walk in the counsel of those who know God. So that's the first thing a happy man does not do. The second thing a happy man does not do is stand in the way of sinners. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. Standing here refers to being in a certain place. First thing was about walking, going somewhere. Now we're standing. Standing is about being somewhere. And it, 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 where they stand, they stand in the way of sinners. The way of sinners refers to the, the road of sinners or the behavior of sinners. So another way to rephrase this would be, happy is the man who does not stand in the places where people behave like sinners. So some ob obvious examples that I could think of was when a Las Vegas clubs or a movie theater that's playing Magic Mike. People are going to these locations specifically to fuel the passions of the flesh. Here with us last week, Jonathan thought very well on First Peter when he saw that the passions of the flesh wage war against our souls. So the righteous, those who are seeking to be truly happy, run from the flesh. We should not be standing around in places where the passions of the flesh are on full display. But that's that's somewhat obvious. There might there's some more nuanced examples I thought of. Uh, maybe the golf course clubhouse, the locker room, or the backyard fire when all the guys are talking about those not so good websites. Or maybe the pool, the lunch table, the family room, where gossip is king and slander is your primary topic. You might be thinking, well, I get not going to the Las Vegas clubs in the magic mic, but these other places, like golf course, 
a locker room, a friend's backyard, the pool, my lunch table, a family room. Wickedness is all around us. Where do you want me to go? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be a witness to lost people if I'm avoiding them at all costs? Well, thankfully these questions are answered in our third thing that the happy man does not do. And the third thing is more sits in the seat of scoffers. If you look at the verbs being used in these three statements in verse 1, we have walking, standing, sitting. First there was walking, not staying for a while, just coming up to get some counsel from the wicked and heading back to the righteous way. Then there was standing, hanging out in the same spaces of sinners. For good, for a while, not forever, eventually coming back to the righteous way. But now we're at sitting. We went from walking, standing, to sitting. The commands are showing a growth in comfortability with sin as they go on. The word sit means to dwell or to remain. There is little to no plan now to go back to the righteous way of life. We are dwelling with the wicked. Growing up, I heard this phrase a lot from my mom. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Well, the Bible says some things pretty similar. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. The reason all these things are being said is because we naturally become like those we are around most. And so when our key relationships are with non-believers, we begin drifting in the wrong direction because we're becoming like those we are around most. So how does this help us answer how we spend time with lost people? How is this help, helping us answer the questions about being in certain places? Well, it might not be as black and white as we may want, but I do think with prudence and wisdom, we can come up with some general principles of how to be faithful to these commands. When it comes to certain places, you see yourself sinning while being there. There's a pattern of sin when you're there or shortly after your time there. Then that's probably not the best place to be. When it comes to lost people in general, just people, if a non-believer has more of a negative influence on you than you have a positive influence on them, probably a good idea to limit time with that person as well. So if you go back to our examples, you can golf with your buddies that don't know the Lord, and you are not affected by their actions and attitude, I think that's a fine thing to do. But if you start to notice as the round goes on, you're talking like them, you're partaking in what they do, you get home and you're short with your wife and your kids, probably going to want to pass on rounds in the future with those guys. Now, about the house that was gossiping, if you go over to the house and they're just tearing each other down, and you begin to join in on it, you should probably find a different way to be around those people if it's good to have those relationships at all. But if instead you're often redirecting those conversations to more fruitful topics, away from slander to good things, you're influencing them more than they influence you, I think that's a fine place to be from time to time. But one thing is for sure, in all but very unique circumstances, we should be dwelling with other believers more than we dwell with the wicked. Just think of Acts 2, the early church, right? What did they do? The early church devoted themselves to scripture, to fellowship, and to praying. They daily eat meals together and praise God. You would get there all the time. What was the outcome of this lifestyle? They had glad and generous hearts, and the Lord added daily 
to those who have been saved. Now they were happy. Their hearts were glad. Remember how this starts. Happy is the man. When we dedicate time to fellowship with other believers like they did in Acts 2, our hearts will be glad. This does not mean that we are a holy huddle. Look what, what happened when they were together. The Lord was adding day by day those who were being saved. Why is that? Because when we prioritize the fellowship of the saints, we are more fit to get light from the dark places. We have a greater desire to reach lost people. And we are better equipped to bring the gospel to the dying. So summarized so far, we should not grow comfortable in our relationship towards sin. Spending time with other believers allows us to hear their counsel. Spending time with other believers allows us to be on their road and in their places. And it allows us to dwell with them in our shared love of God. The man who is happy does not take counsel from the wicked, does not go to the places of sinners, and does not dwell with the scoffers. So let's now transition to verse 2, where it describes two things that a happy man does do. Thing one, his delight is in the wall of the Lord. I used to golf the analogy, I love golf. Man, I find delight in golfing. I play golf too much. And golf is great. It's slow paced. You're out in nature with your friends. You can enjoy the beauties of different holes and undulations of different courses. You constantly have a new goal or something to be working on. But how great golf is, it can never satisfy my supreme delight. If golf was my permanent happiness, one rainy day, one bad round, one injury, if one of a hundred things that could prevent me from enjoying golf happened, I'd be ruined. If golf was my supreme joy, when it was taken away, when it was somehow affected, when it eventually, like everything else in life, it became less satisfying, I would have no hope. So what should our delight be in? Happy is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. It's the only thing that's unchanging. The only thing that no one can take away. It is the only thing that will always be there. God and his word are the only things that are fit to satisfy our hearts. Now John Piper, speaking on this, has a great quote. It's a little bit lengthy, so stay with me. Try to hear these words. He says, Virtually everything I think about, and every sermon I give, and every counseling session I have, and every visitation to the hospital I make, I have one main goal. I want to awaken affections for God and satisfy people with God. That's the way I see everything in the world. I don't think mainly about ideas, though I am an idea guy. Ideas are more like cooking not eating. Ideas are like clearing springs away, digging wells, not drinking. I'm ultimately after drinking, not thinking. Thinking is the workhorse. Take me to the spring, I'm born to drink. I want to be happy forever, totally. Nothing small. I want big, deep, strong, unshakable joy. And the whole world wants it. They don't know that dribbling their lives away on a thousand things that cannot satisfy So if God and his word are the spring that we are made to drink from, the things that we find delight in, what is the workforce that gets us to that spring? Well, that's thing number two. It's the second thing that happy man does. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Meditating on scripture 
is the pathway to finding delight in Scripture. Notice that it is meditating on Scripture and not simply reading or hearing it. Moving from simply reading and hearing to meditating is very important, and James 1, 22, 25 helps us see why. It says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away at once, and forgets what he is like. But the one who looks at his perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no doer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So often, we are the reader of the word, to hear the word, who forgets. Like the man in the mirror who turned away and gets what he looks like. Just think, we'll do a little, little test. You read your Bible yesterday. Let's think about that. What did you read? What was it about? And how are you applying it to your life right now? Not to shame you, but a lot of times it's really hard to answer that question. Someone asks you, what would you read about yesterday? Tell, let, let's dive into the riches of that text. And reading and hearing the word alone is great. Our, our lives are being transformed even if we can't answer those questions I just asked. But the bigger goal is to meditate on God's word. Hold on to it all day, not just a few minutes each morning. And Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. We meditate on Scripture so that we can be careful to do all that is written in it. So what are some ways to meditate on Scripture? Well, Donald Whitney, a professor at Southern on the class I took called Spiritual Disciplines, wrote a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And he lays out 17 ways to meditate on the Bible. I want to give you three that have been the most helpful for me. First, formulate a principle from the text. So this method is especially helpful when you're just reading when you're reading more than a verse or two, what you do is you think about what was the main idea of the text I just read. Good examples are a sermon summary each week or the phrase that the person who closed out the service says. They're trying to summarize what the text is about. And so if you come up with a summary, however good or bad it is, and you can just think about that for a second and how it fits into your life, this will help you later in the day when someone asks those questions. And what was my sermon summary? And, and, and you'll be able to get it uh, to better remember what you were thinking about that morning. And you'll, you'll have a statement that will help you meditate on the text throughout the day. The second method is to pray the text. Pray through the text. On this method, Don Whitney, the writer, says, Biblical meditation must always involve two parties, the Christian and the Holy Spirit. Praying over a text is a Christian's invitation for the Holy Spirit to hold his divine light over the words of Scripture, to show you what you cannot see without him. Now let's look at verse 2 as an example. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say a prayer that is probably appropriate for praying the text. The verse says, His delight is in the law of the Lord and meditates on his day and night. A prayer could be something as simple as, Father, thank you that your word is good. Thank you that I can find joy in the Bible. Help me to run to your word more frequently. Help me to enjoy your word more deeply. Help me to not just read your word, but to meditate on it day and night. Help me to remember what I'm reading and to think about it throughout the day. Forgive me for failing to do this so often. Thank you for your grace. 
And it's not as simple as that. Over one, one text, what, what is this going to do? It's going to help us remember more deeply what we are reading because we're praying about it. It's going to help our prayers be conformed to God's Word. And if you want to learn more about this, since his method has been so effective in Don Whitney's ministry, he has a small book solely on this method alone called Praying the Bible. And it's a great resource if you want to learn more about that method. So finally, the third method, and this is to memorize the text. And this is great with just a verse or two. And you'd, you'd be surprised how quickly you can mem- memorize a verse. Just spending a few minutes reading it out loud over and over again, thinking about it. And this is a great method for meditation because you can come back to it anytime, anywhere, forever. You will be having this verse on your mind. If you're reading a longer text, just pick out one verse that stuck out to you, a verse that summarized the text well, and memorize that. And the great thing about meditating on Scripture is it's not based on our abilities. You don't have to be a seminary student or a pastor or a lifetime Bible reader. Our job is just to think about what is in front of us and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. It's pretty cool. So, we've seen that the happy man is not to a full of sin, but instead his delight is in Scripture. And he meditates on that day and night. Verse 3 tells us what this man is like. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. At the end of the pursuit of happiness, they were prospering, quote-unquote, and happy because of their material circumstances and their life possessions. But the phrase, in all that he does, he prospers, I don't think it's talking about the prospering that we saw in the movie. There are two passages that come to mind when I think of true prospering. Philippians 4.13 says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty of hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Hebrews 10.34 says, You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plump property, since you knew yourselves had a better possession in the Bible. So how was Paul and these Christians in Hebrews prospering? Well, Paul was brought low, he was hungry, he was in need. The Christians in Hebrews have their homes ripped away from them. But, but what does it say? It says they were prosperous not because of their worldly possessions and their life circumstances, like in the pursuit of happiness, they were Prosper because they knew how to be content and joyful in God. Just look at what their focus was on. Paul was content because he could do all things through Christ who strengthens him. He could be content in anything. The Christians and Hebrews were joyful while their homes were being ripped away from them because they have a better possession than this world, an eternal one, and an abiding one. So Christian prosperity is knowing that the God of the universe died so that you could live, right? It's knowing that because of Jesus' death, the wrath of God is satisfied, and we will one day live eternally with God in paradise. That's Christian prospering. So what, why does the man yield fruit and does not wither? Because his life is focused on eternal matters. It's useful, it lasts, it has purpose. The kind of life, as Jude mentioned, that stores up treasure in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot steal. You can take away his possessions, you can take away his comfort, but you can't take away his God. 
So if you want to be happy, what does our text say? Do not dwell with the wicked or grow comfortable with sin, which both take you away from God, which is our true source of joy. So instead, find pleasure in God. Know Jesus through the depths of his word. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, bales fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. So we looked at the way of happiness in section two. Let's now look at the way of death in section two. Section two, the way of death. Verse four starts out, the wicked are not so. So what are they not so? Everything that the blessed man, the happy man does is characteristic of the righteous. The wicked are not like the righteous. They are not so. The wicked walk in the counsel of other wicked. The wicked go to places where people are sinned. The wicked dwell with others who are wicked. The wicked do not find delight in God. The wicked do not meditate on scripture. The wicked are not by streams of water. The wicked's leaf does wither. The wicked do not prosper. The righteous, it says in verse 2, are like a tree. Their hope has roots. Their permanent happiness in God is unshakable. But here in verse 4, the wicked are not so. They're like chaff. Now, chaff is just a straw that farmers would use for the bedding of animals. Derek Kidner says, chaff is the ultimate meaning of rootless. Weightless and useless. This is the wicked. Why is it chaff? Because when the wind comes for the troubles of life, the tree is solid. Its hope is in God. It's unshakable. But the chaff that's weightless, when the wind comes, it drives it away. What does this mean? The wicked have their hope in their careers, possessions, families, success, wealth, power, sex, looks, reputation, health, experiences. Not only is it holding things, but they think permanent happiness can be found in them. Yes, all these things can produce temporary happiness, but none of them can produce lasting happiness. And all of them, like chaff, can be driven away as quickly as they came. Now, worst of all for the wicked, Chaff does not produce fruit. Their life is useless. It will not last. It withers away. Is this how we're viewing the lives of lost people? Do we see those we care about, who do not know Jesus, those we love through his lens? I think we really think about this and think about people we love who do not know God. We'll want to be more faithful in our evangelism. The world desperately needs to know the depths of their depriving, the depths of God's love. It is our job as God's workmanship to share this good news. I also think that this depravity that the wicked experience is a tool in our evangelism that we often shy away from. Since the prosperity gospel is so prevalent, I think we can be sometimes afraid to say that following God is better than living for yourself and living for the world. Yet when we come to a passage like Psalm 1, the life that is better is certainly the Christian life. It's not even close. 
And yes, the primary message we have for lost people is they need to be saved from their sins forever. And yes, it's not the prosperity gospel. This doesn't mean that their life will be easier. But when people are hurting and they feel that their life is hopeless, we can help them see in a text like Psalm 1 that they can be content and joyful in all circumstances on this side of eternity now because of what God has done for them. But as we mentioned, the most pressing problem is eternity. And this is what we've come to now in verses 5 and 6. Since the wicked do not blame God, verse 5 and 6 say what they have earned. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When the wicked sign is up, they will stand before God and be judged based on their works. They will not be able to stand. They cannot stand in the judgment. And instead of joining the congregation of the righteous in eternal paradise, they will be cast out into eternal darkness, where they will continuously perish. Well, the problem we now run into is if everyone is based, judged based off their works, no one can stand. Romans 3.23 says, For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has earned judgment with their works. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous. No, not one. We have all earned to be in the place of the wicked here. We all deserve to face judgment and eternally perish. It's what we've earned with our works. Yet God, in his loving kindness, has imputed to us his own righteousness. Jesus, the only one who has been perfectly righteous, has given it to us because he died on our behalf. And if we trust him, we gain his righteousness. Then, all those who trust in God and have been given his righteousness on the last day, we will not be judged because of our works, but we will be judged based on Jesus' righteousness. So if you've not trusted your life to Jesus, if you do not live like the righteous man, but live like the wicked, it's not too late. Put your trust in Jesus, and he will be faithful to forgive you of your wickedness and give you his righteousness. Most importantly, you will be saved from your sin and live with God forever. But also now, think about, think about now, this text. You will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Your happiness will now be permanent because it's based on God and what he's done for you. It can't be shaken. It's unmovable. Life will be easier. Hard times still come. But when they do, you can look back at when Christ saved you. And you can look forward to the day when you'll be with him forever. That's our hope. That's the gospel. So what have we learned from today? Easy living and nice things can bring us temporary happiness. They're good to some extent. But they will always let us down. Permanent happiness can only come from delighting in God. Therefore, we should avoid sin in the places it's so readily available. And instead, we should spend our time meditating on God's word, the one thing that can bring us true joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a text like Psalm 1. Thank you for your gospel that you died so that we could live. Help us, Lord, to not walk in the way of the living, but to delight in your law. 
Help us to grow affections for your scriptures and to meditate on them day and night. Father, help us to share your gospel faithfully so that the ones we love are not like the wicked. They're not like the chaff that the wind drives away. Lord, help us find true joy and true delight in you. May our permanent happiness come from delighting in you. Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.